his life was cut short. He didn't get the opportunity to complete his degree, you know, and, and do great things in the world. It's something that you can't never, people say, oh, it's been 20 years, you know, you should be over that. No, you can't, you can't never be over it. You know, I wish those people would be willing to tell the truth about what they know and about what happened that night. I just pray that one day, you know, we can find out who really did it. Why would somebody want to kill Charles Ballard? Welcome to The Fifth Floor. The Fifth Floor podcast is designed to bring you cases from the Columbus Division of Police in Columbus, Ohio. This podcast is hosted and produced by real police officers with the intention of educating the public about some of our unsolved cases. By providing this material in this format, we hope that with the help of our listeners, we will find additional information to solve these cases. We will never stop looking for these killers, and we will find you. Due to the descriptions of violence, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to part two of the Charles Chico Ballard case. If you are new to this series or haven't had a chance to listen to the first episode, we'll start off by recapping this case. Our homicide case is about a young college student who was killed at only 22 years old, just weeks before his 23rd birthday. Our victim, Charles Chico Ballard, was attending the Ohio State University and was earning a degree in mechanical engineering. Chico was a well-liked student and had a close relationship with his family, who lived in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Chico was a normal college student living a normal college life until his life was tragically ended by murder. We reached out to Chico's family before we began this podcast series and let them know that we wanted to discuss his case in our podcast with the hope of gathering new leads that would help solve his murder. One of his friends tells us a little bit about who Chico was. My name is Mary Bynum. My first year was 1993. So I was a student. I was a freshman in 1993. And I met Chico 1995 when he was a freshman. And so we met at, um, I worked for summer conference housing in the residential hall in the summer. And um, there was a group of engineering students. And actually, I met a few of them all at the same time. Kenny, Leo, Chico, they were all uh, engineering students. And the funniest thing was I was working at the front desk, and he came over to the front desk, and he asked if I wanted to play cards. And that was our very, very first interaction. And I'm thinking to myself, but I'm working. I can't play cards right now. And um, so he said, okay, well, fine. When you get off work, do you want to play cards with us? And so I said, sure. And so we sat in the lobby and we played cards. And in the summers, it was kind of boring. It wasn't a whole lot of students on campus. So 
you know, there were a small group of us that interacted. And um, for whatever reason, we just, we hit it off. We became extremely good friends. We were, we were very good friends. Um, he was extremely silly. Very, probably the most funniest person you ever wanted to meet. Very smart. Probably one of the smartest people I knew. Math. He could do math like nobody's business. And I think what a lot of people didn't know about him is he was extremely shy. Very shy, but always attempting to make you smile. I would talk to him sometimes three, four, five o'clock in the morning. Talk to him about his girlfriends. I remember actually two of his girlfriends that he and I would talk about. And um, he was a bit of a poet. He would write poetry. Um, and most of his poetry would be about his girlfriends. <laughs> um, and so I, I found that to be, you know, interesting that we kind of share that commonality. And so the very last time that I saw him, we had lunch at Grinders on High Street, which I don't even think is there anymore. But that was the last time. And when we talked, he talked a great deal about graduating, his plans for graduating. He was determined that he was not going to not finish school. Very determined about that. Murder in the words, it, don't, it doesn't match up when you're speaking about this individual. It, 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 that's the problem. They don't match. There are some people you'll say, oh, I know what that happened. I know what they were involved in. I know what they were doing. Um, you know, he wanted to pledge a fraternity. He wanted to do normal things that a college kid would do. Coming from the inner city of Cleveland, coming to Ohio State, for many of us, was a blessing. You just wanted that experience. And this is unexplainable. Chico had no enemies and only one person that he had experienced problems with. Columbus Police Homicide Detectives began their investigation, which led them to locate a suspect who we are referring to as Kevin. Kevin was the only person that Chico had any problems with at the time. Kevin had been employed at a gas station near Chico's house, but had lost his job shortly before Chico had been murdered. We left off last week discussing how Kevin had been located with Chico's ATM card just 90 minutes after Chico was killed. The ATM card was in Chico's ex-girlfriend's name, and it took detectives approximately 10 days to realize the connection. Once Chico's ex-girlfriend let detectives know that Chico had been in possession of the ATM card prior to his murder, it led them to Kevin as a main suspect. As we heard from Detective Farbacher in the last episode, patrol officers located Kevin on North High Street 
wearing a ski mask, and trying to use the ATM card at two different ATMs. Officers had confiscated the card, since it wasn't in Kevin's name, and the circumstances surrounding him trying to use it were highly suspicious. Again, because Chico was extremely well-liked, it had bothered him deeply that he had run-ins with Kevin. It had actually weighed on him so much, in fact, that he went to his older sister for advice on how to handle that situation. Chico's sister, Cherie, recounts her brother asking her advice after the confrontation. Because we were so close, I mean, we, he always would tell me stuff to get my opinion on it. And um, he had told me, like, like right after the incident happened, maybe like a week or so later, that he had an issue with somebody at a gas station and he was like it was he was buying a cigar or something and the guy was really tripping and stuff and I had told him you know I was like well you know Charles you know people nowadays you know they be crazy maybe you ought to go back and try to apologize and squash it so it won't nothing won't nothing happen from it in the end he didn't say much to me about it um later he just, but then he did come back and say well I went down there to try to apologize but they said he wasn't working there anymore the ATM card found in Kevin's possession belonged to Anessa, Chico's ex-girlfriend. But according to her, that card was only ever used by Chico. During the stop that night, patrol officers completed a field interview and took possession of the card and the ski mask. Then they submitted that evidence to the Columbus Police Property Room. A field interview is completed when officers have an interaction with an individual that may not rise to the level of a crime at the time, but it's suspicious. I'm Rob Davis. Um, I have 22 years on. I was working with a partner, Don Sexton. Uh, we were working um, for a precinct, C Company, which for precinct is usually uh, the campus area of Ohio State off campus. And um, we were just patrolling that night. It was um, in February. I remember it was cold out, but it wasn't super cold out. And it was pretty dead that night. We were just driving up and down High Street. And um, we just happened to notice this guy that was um, kind of lurking around an ATM around 17th and High, I believe. It might have been like a bank one at the time. And um, he had a full ski mask on. And we thought that was pretty weird just because it was cold, but it wasn't super, super cold. And um, so we're kind of just watching him. And he's just looking around really suspiciously. and. So we decided we'd go over there and um, talk to him, see what's going on. And I think as we went, we were working the wagon. Um, as we went over there, I think we kind of went up on the curve there. He immediately saw us coming and turned around, walked away, and uh, started going back towards his uh, Jeep that he had running there. And uh, so we kind of stopped him there and just interacted with him a little bit and asked him what he was doing. And he was just super nervous. I remember that. And he really, he was shaking uncontrollably more so than other people that we would stop for or have interactions with for other reasons. Um, so he knew something wasn't right with him, what was going on. And at some point, I believe he dropped um, debit card. And um, we found that over by the Jeep and we're asking him about it. And it had a girl's name on it. And he said that he had found that at, uh, a bar called Bernie's that's on High Street there uh, a couple of days ago and was just trying to use it and get some money out. And he just uh, 
was really, really nervous about the whole interaction, shaking a lot. And I just remember we, we were thinking, well, it's probably stolen card or, you know, something going on with the card here. That's why he's acting very nervous. And, but at that time we didn't have computers in the cars and things like that. So we really couldn't do much follow-up at 430 in the morning. So I remember we just called the detective bureau and, um, got some input and advice from them. We ended up, um, doing a field interview card and documenting the incident with him and, uh, turning in the, the car to the property room and then uh, eventually letting him go on his way. It was eerie because Ford Precinct is usually pretty busy through the night because um, it's, you know, campus and kids are out. They don't really have days or jobs to go to during the day. So they stay out later. So Ford Precinct generally is really busy during the night. But this night it was just quiet and just super slow and super quiet. And I think, you know, that's kind of the reason why he stuck out to us that night. Officers obviously felt that Kevin's behavior at the time was unusual and maybe criminal, but weren't able to charge him with a crime at the time, likely because of the late hour and because cell phones still weren't very prevalent. They weren't able to contact Anessa to see if Kevin was allowed to be in possession of her card. It was good police work that they stopped him to investigate. It's really important for this case that they obtained Kevin's information while they completed field interview and took the card and ski mask as evidence. Once detectives and burglary reached out to Anessa, thinking the card had been stolen from her, they were able to connect the evidence that probably never would have been linked otherwise. Detective Farbacher now had a lead to follow, and it was a really good one. Well, the... The very really interesting thing about the credit card was the person in possession of the credit card was the employee from the BP station, same person who Mr. Bauer had had the confrontation with. So we drafted a search warrant for his home. Uh, we went out. Um, we brought him down to police headquarters to be re-interviewed. Uh, we interviewed a, a woman he lived with, his girlfriend at the time. We conducted a search warrant on his home to see if we could find any additional pieces of evidence or anything else. Um, during the interview, he talked about, he claimed that he had found the card um, near where he had used the first ATM. And uh, he could not recall whose name was on the card. He admitted that he knew what he was doing was wrong with the card by trying to access the ATM. He said on the back of the card, there were four digits that someone had written on there with a marker, and those are the four digits he assumed were the pin, and that's what he kept trying to use when he put this in the machine to get money, but neither one worked. Neither machine that he went to worked with that number. Uh, but he claimed he had no knowledge of whose card this was. Uh, you know, he had found it, like I said, near that first ATM that he had tried to use, and that was the reason he had it. When Kevin's girlfriend was interviewed, she stated that on the day in question, Kevin came home from work and they watched TV together. She said that they went to bed and to her knowledge, Kevin was there with her all night. Except, of course, we now know he wasn't. And detectives at that time knew it too. So they showed her the field interview and the information that they had about Kevin being at the ATM. She said that she was surprised and said that she didn't know anything about Kevin being out. She claimed that she was a very heavy sleeper, and Kevin later said in an interview that he didn't wake her up because she had class in the morning. 
so she can't account for his movements because she was asleep and has no idea when he left or returned. He also never told her about getting stopped and questioned by the police, according to her. Detective Farbacher's next move was to re-interview Kevin. Because this is an active investigation, and Kevin has never been charged or ruled out as a suspect, a lot of what was said we cannot discuss. Suffice it to say, he wasn't cleared, but he also didn't confess to the murder. Kevin was 23 years old at the time of the murder. He had no children, and after he quit his job at BP, or was fired, he drifted from job to job. At the time of Chico's murder, it is unknown if he was employed anywhere. Kevin moved to Columbus in his early 20s and didn't have a criminal record. After the murder, Detective Farbacher kept track of Kevin. Kevin has since left the Columbus area, but still resides in the state of Ohio. Kevin and his then-girlfriend are no longer dating, and we found out that they broke up about a year after Chico was murdered. This is another example of how cases go cold. All of this information together develops quite a bit of circumstantial evidence. But circumstantial evidence isn't always strong enough to put a case together and file a charge especially a charge for murder. And in this case, after consultation with the prosecutor's office, Detective Farbacher didn't believe that he had enough to charge Kevin with the murder of Chico Ballard. I, I've always believed, you know, it, it's been a long time, but I've always believed that it will be solved. I, I've never stopped believing that for one second. Not one second. I am very optimistic about that. The people we talked to that knew the suspect, um, we did not believe they were entirely forthcoming about the information they provided about the suspect, about his whereabouts all the time, about the fact could he have owned a firearm, um, just some things like that. Some of the statements that these people gave us we thought were a little maybe prearranged or rehearsed when they spoke to us. And, uh, you know, I wish those people would be willing to tell the truth about what they know and about what happened that night. Detective Farbacher did a news interview in 2010 with reporter Holly Zachariah of the Columbus Dispatch for a segment called Killers Among Us. All of the information contained in this podcast was released in the article with the hope that someone would come forward with information. Detective Farbacher needed that information to solve the case and charge Chico's murderer. Despite the amount of circumstantial evidence surrounding Kevin, Detectives did not rule out the possibility of other suspects. However, this murder suggested violence against Chico directly and did not have the markings of a home invasion or a robbery that ended in murder. His wallet was missing. Uh, I believe the cell phone he had back then was missing. So it was smaller personal items like that that were gone. But, you know, his apartment, as I recall, was not ransacked. It wasn't searched, you know, real thoroughly. Um, I don't remember. He may have had jewelry on him that nobody took the time to take. You know, it just was not indicative of let's kill him specifically for a robbery. To me, it was almost once I shot him, hey, his apartment door's open. I'm going to take a look and see what's in here to see if there's something there I can take with me. Chico's death rocked his family and friends. His sister, Cherie, 
shared with us the impact of Chico's life on those around him. The impact that he had on people, the church today that he had his funeral was so packed. People were standing outside. It was nowhere for nobody. It was people from college, people from high school. It was just like he had an enormous impact on people. To this day, you still have people that be like, I remember Chico, this, you know, did this. Or um, I remember when he, yeah, you know, they still have stories that they held on to. 20 years later, and Chico's family still mourns his loss. His family spoke to us about him as a person and the hole that his murder has left in their life. I truly miss him. I used to have dreams where he would be like in my dream and we'll be laughing and talking. And then I wake up and start crying because I know he wasn't really there, you know. But, you know, if you religiously think or you think about other things that people say, people come back and they visit you in your dreams or, you know, and it could just be your subconscious or whatever. But it just seems so real you know, like all the time. And I just miss him. I miss him to this day. I tell my kids about him. When my youngest, my oldest was little, he used to look at his picture and smile and laugh. And I used to be like, that's your angel. And I guess he probably did because he seemed like he knew he was. But, you know, it's it's really hard because I just know that things in life probably would have been a lot different. Chico's family has carried on with their lives and have found ways to cope with their loss. But his murder will never stop affecting them. Chico's murderer remains free, which means that they are still seeking answers. Who took their beloved Chico and why still remains unanswered. They seek answers, and so does the detective that is currently in charge of this case. I just pray that one day, you know, we can find out who really did it. Chico Ballard was not the typical homicide victim. He had he had a pretty good life. Uh, he had a good future in front of him. He had good parents, a good family that I met. And it's not that uh, nobody deserves to be killed, but he clearly did not put himself in a position to end up in a situation with what happened to him. You know, there was whoever killed him um, put a lot of thought and planning. You know, this was a really cold-blooded act. He knew that if I go down there and cut the power off, that he's going to have to come downstairs and check and see what's wrong with the fuses, what's wrong with the panel. You know, it's it was cold. It was February that He's going to come down and take a look and see why is my electric off? What's wrong? And they waited for him. And uh, in law enforcement, we talk about the fatal funnel. Don't put yourself in a doorway or somewhere where if a suspect shoots at you, you have nowhere to go. And Chico, unfortunately, was in that fatal funnel right at the bottom of the steps. He had walls on either side. There's nowhere to go. And the person shot him and killed him. Again, while this case is classified a cold case, it is still being worked today. This is very much an active and ongoing case. Recently, more interviews were conducted, which is helping continue to build the case. Chico's killer may still be free and has never been charged with his murder, but we are confident that he or she will soon be held accountable. Detective Gillette is continuing to build on the original investigation that was done by Detective Farbacher, and he believes that Chico's murderer will soon be brought to justice. The cold case sergeant, Sergeant McConnell, assists four detectives in the cold case unit in a number of ways. Sergeant McConnell was asked how detectives go about taking over a cold case, and this is what he had to say. So once the case gets assigned to the detective, 
one of the first things they have to do is kind of just read through all of the documentation to familiarize themselves with the case. And that can be a lengthy process in itself because usually the size of these files are quite large and they have a lot of uh, summaries from all, the, all of the people that were interviewed, all of the lab reports that were completed and the results that came back from those. So there's a lot of reading to get familiar with the case. And then as they read that, they look for things that they might have done or things that they believe need to be done to further the case. They'll just prioritize those items and start working on them. Relating to the Chico Ballard case, is there anything specific you want to say or share about this case? I would just say that if there's anyone out there who knows anything about this, no matter how insignificant you feel it might be, please call us or um, feel free to reach out to Crime Stoppers and provide that information. Any, any help is, and any information is better than none at all. This case has a lot of solvability. Even though detectives still haven't ruled out the possibility that someone else could have killed Chico, the circumstantial evidence surrounding Kevin is mounting, from the old information gathered to the current leads coming in today. This case is solvable. It is. Somebody knows. He was not alone. There were people that were around. There were people very close to him. Somebody knows something. Chico didn't deserve to be shot and killed in his basement. Chico's family didn't deserve to have their son, their brother, and their friend ripped from their lives forever. Chico's friends didn't deserve to lose the person who brought so much joy to their lives. Someone knows who committed this horrible crime. Someone knows that this wasn't a random killing or a robbery gone wrong. The murderer went to Chico's apartment, waited in Chico's basement, then gunned him down in cold blood, ripping apart a family forever. I'll never forget. This cannot be the end. His family needs closure. That's what I would say. You, you think you're getting away with things. It will come back. Just do the right thing. Now. Just do it, do it now. It'll, it'll come back to haunt you. And I cannot imagine whoever was involved in this situation that they're all right. And, and that's the one thing that gives me some kind of peace that they cannot be okay with, with this situation. They can't be. It's, it's got to eat them up to some degree internally. But what I do believe is they've shared it with someone else. And that somebody else knows. And why they're reluctant to come forward, I don't know. But I pray that they do. Uh, I believe that they do. They will. It will be. And, you know, I, I'm glad that it continues to stay open. I'm glad that it continues to be a conversation. 
I'm glad, you know, to hear that that many folks are, you know, interested in this case. I just hope that, you know, sooner than later, that we get to the bottom of it. Help us find and bring Chico's killer to justice. Help us answer the question that has haunted his family for over 20 years. Who killed Chico Ballard? If you or someone you know has information on this case, please contact detectives at the Columbus Division of Police by calling the homicide tip line at 614-645-2228. If you prefer to remain anonymous, you may contact us through Crime Stoppers at 614-461-8477.